Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. We're not anti-donor. We're not ignoring them. We're just considering the needs and wants and desires of other groups along with donors. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon One. Today, I'm interviewing Mallory Mitchell. Mallory is a devoted fundraiser and co-founder of Align Strategy Group. Mallory's love for fundraising began during her undergraduate days when she worked in a call center calling alumni for donations. Over the years, she has developed expertise in helping nonprofits adopt community-centric fundraising principles, focusing on individual giving. Her experiences at Minneapolis Urban League opened her eyes to the struggles faced by BIPOC-led organizations, inspiring her to seek out alternative fundraising methods. Today, she is a strong advocate for community-centric fundraising and its potential to create a more inclusive and equitable sector. In our conversation, we talk all about the distinction between community-centric and donor-centric fundraising, which is something I think a lot of us misunderstand in this sector. We also talk about the negative and sometimes unintended impact of donor-centric fundraising and how to infuse community-centric principles into your work so that you aren't excluding donors, but you're including more than just donors. We also talk about community-centric gratitude practices, what it looks like to have more inclusive communication, and what to do if you want to be using community-centric fundraising practices, but you don't have the support of your team. This mini-series is all about donor engagement, and it is so important to be thinking about donor engagement from a community-centric lens as well. There is so much inside this episode, so let's dive in so you can meet Mallory. Everyone, I am so excited to be here today with Mallory Mitchell. Mallory, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you. Glad to be here. You are the first Mallory that I'm having on the show <laughs> as a guest, which I love. I'm so happy you're here. I've loved getting to know you. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you, about your journey, and what brings you to our conversation today? Yeah, I'm Mallory Mitchell. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a co-founder of Aligned Strategy Group. We're a kind of consultancy for nonprofits, helping them really implement community-centric fundraising and specializing in individual giving. I got into fundraising. It was my first job ever. This is all I've ever done. I started in the call center of my undergrad, calling alumni and asking them to give. And it's a love it or hate it kind of gig. And I loved it, just ate it up. And the full-time staff really encouraged me to think about fundraising as a career. So that's what got me to Minnesota to study nonprofits, to get deeper into fundraising. And that's how it went. Been doing it ever since. And would you say like your journey as a fundraiser 
what has been the evolution into what we now know under the umbrella of community-centric fundraising, although we know the, the practices included in that now more formalized organization yeah. have been used by many fundraisers and community organizers for a long time. But will you tell us a little bit about your evolution and relationship to those dynamics that really has led you to focusing on community-centric fundraising principles today? I guess it kind of came on my radar in my second full-time position. I was at Minneapolis Urban League. It's a Black-led organization, and I was their director of development. And I just saw firsthand how much harder it is for Black-led and BIPOC-led organizations to raise the money that they need. You're just not given the same opportunities, the same benefit of the doubt, all of those things. And that really kind of like stirred something in me that's like, wait, this is not landing the way that it's supposed to. Something isn't right here. And then the role I went to after that was the opposite. That was sort of this white-led, born-of-a-foundation organization, and it was so easy for them to get money. And I was like, all right, there's a dissonance here, and I want to study that. And I had a colleague, Leah, who invited me to this training by Justice Funders. And I was like, I'm not super familiar, but like anything Leah recommends, I'm there. And the whole event was around just thinking about fundraising differently. It was the first time that I heard about white supremacy and fundraising. It was the first time that I heard about, like they offered the suggestion that you can add on your acknowledgement letters. Like if you're interested in supporting us, these other organizations might be of interest to you. And I was like, my boss would kill me. I didn't even know that was an option. And so that training really opened my eyes to like, oh, I did not know that there were other ways of doing this. And these ways feel so much more right and just sit so much better with me. So that's really what kind of got me opening my mind to a different way of fundraising. And CCF, I think I was kind of in that mass email list when they had their first Zoom event that had like 600 people on one call. It was the first time that I heard about CCF. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Like, this is everything. And so I've been 100% about it ever since. I love hearing your journey. And I'm curious, we've talked about donor centrism and community centric fundraising on this show before, but we've never really defined um, or shared a little bit about the history of donor-centric fundraising. And I know you recently made a post around how the three pillars of donor-centric fundraising are rooted in white supremacy. And I do think there's this conversation happening in our sector around donor centrism didn't start off as a quote-unquote bad thing, but how it's been applied has been really problematic. But what I hear you saying is actually like in the root of those principles, like it was always going to be problematic because of these things. So can you talk us through that a little bit? So donor-centered fundraising, which I did not know in my research, I discovered was a book. I thought it was just like a philosophy, but it's a book written by Penelope Burke. It was first published in the U.S., I think in 2003. And she interviewed all of these donors and did this research study around like what would make you feel special like what makes you feel good what makes you feel like this nonprofit is the right nonprofit for you and from that is how she developed the three principles or three requirements of donor centered fundraising and I thought what was really interesting in that is when you read sort of the description of the book it says that these are intended to increase profit and I think that is so interesting because like 
that encapsulates how we get to where we are today. That's like when our whole approach is rooted in the pursuit of just money in pursuit of profit in pursuit of making people feel so good that they give you more and more and more. Like, of course, we're going to end up in this place where there's not room for everyone and some egos are taking up more space in the room than others. Like it's going to lead to all of these issues. I say all that to say that like, I don't think that donor centered fundraising was intended to be a white supremacist practice. (laughs) I think that in its initial goal, there was just no other way for it to go. And now that we're having more of these conversations today, it's become more obvious that this is the approach that quote unquote worked. But now that we have a different definition of success, we're needing a different path forward and community-centric fundraising is giving us that path. Okay, yeah. Will you tell everyone on here what the three principles are of donor-centric fundraising? Yes. So the first requirement is receiving prompt and meaningful acknowledgement whenever they make a gift. The second is having every gift they make, regardless of its value, assigned to a program, project, or initiative narrower in scope than the mission as a whole. And the third is receiving a report in measurable terms on what was accomplished with the last gift before being asked for another. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, what's hard sometimes when I hear things like this is, you know, I study a lot of behavioral science. I am a wannabe behavioral scientist and maybe in my next life. But I recently interviewed a behavioral scientist on the show and we were talking about some things and she shared some research around overhead myth and all these tests that they had done that had shown that, you know, marketing and grassroots fundraising campaigns did better when they said 100% of the money goes to the program. And I was like, I don't like that. (laughs) And, And she was like, well, Valerie, like this is the thing about behavioral science is like we do these tests and sometimes we get these really unfortunate truths come out of it about human behavior. And I hear that and I understand that there are certain ways that we are programmed as people. I also think we, like the nonprofit sector, is training donors to behave in that way. So I think there's also something where it's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg that we need to acknowledge? And then I think something that you talk about a lot is like, okay, but like at what cost? And this is like, The place where I find myself struggling, honestly, a lot is like when I'm working with organizations or making recommendations. And I find myself saying sometimes, listen, the behavioral science around this will say that here is what is going to get you on that email, on that campaign, the higher return. I feel like it's my obligation as a consultant to be honest about what I know around that data. And your organization has to make a decision around what doing that ultimately means for the organization long-term, what it means for how that money is used in the short-term, what it means for the donors that you're trying to cultivate and build community around. And you have to make that decision for yourself, but here's kind of like all the pieces. But I struggle with it. And I'm just curious, like, how do you deal with that intersection? Because you're obviously coaching people to raise more money from their individual donors, to figure out ways to make the ask, to inspire giving. You want to help these organizations move money into their nonprofits, not for the money, but for the impact. So how do you sit at that intersection? 
Yeah, I think it's a yes and. Like, yes, these donor-centered practices are going to raise more money, and they also cause harm along the way. And I think we have to make decisions that account for both of those things and just make a choice that we know that letting this donor go because they're not values aligned is going to have a financial impact. But in this instance, pursuing and living into our values is the most important thing. Where there might be other times that's like, actually, while we want to do that, it doesn't make sense for us right now because money is tight. And so maybe our approach is to just have really honest conversation with this donor and focus on education or something like that. But I think it's this yes and that the donor-centered practices will raise you more money, but they do also have a cost. And that cost is just not as easily seen because it's just woven into our entire white supremacist culture. And I think we kind of see that in these requirements. So like, if you look at the first one, receiving prompt and meaningful acknowledgement whenever they make a gift, like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. (laughs) You know, like people Mm -hmm. are probably going to give you more when you thank them, you know, in a tight turnaround, but trying to meet that tight turnaround means that we're cutting corners on acknowledging people in the way that they specifically want and need to be acknowledged. You know, the acknowledgement letter that everyone gets, is not going to hit the same for every person, but in order to hit that prompt part, that's what everyone is getting. So I, I use that as an example to show that like it does have good intentions and it will give you good results, but it does have a cost. And so you have to acknowledge that cost and then make an informed decision on if it's worth it to you. I really appreciate that you gave a few scenarios in terms of here's a scenario where you might make this choice and here's a scenario where you might make this choice because I do think, you know, and this is a conversation I've had with a number of the leaders of community-centric fundraising too, you know, I think one of the things that I've been witnessing is white folks in particular trying to adopt community-centric principles, but not having done work around white supremacy culture. And so they are taking some of those very ingrained principles, which like I am decoupling these things every day and dealing with the reality that this is programmed into so many pieces of myself, like perfectionism in particular, right? So when perfectionism being part of white supremacy culture, when that starts to get applied to community-centric fundraising, everything, you know, another piece of white supremacy culture, like black and white binary thinking. So we're like, okay, then if we're doing community centric practices, we can never, ever, ever do anything donor centric. And then they find themselves in this very complicated place. So talk to me a little bit about how you think about those pieces. Yeah, this is actually why I built my training unpacking donor centric fundraising is because I noticed that too, that People get to a point in CCF where they're like, I've hit a wall. I don't know what to do. Or they even like backtrack. And it's because they haven't unpacked the white supremacy of it first, or that they haven't really gotten on board with why we're doing CCF, with why CCF is important. So there's a a part in that curriculum where I talk about, there's like a visual that shows that Donor-centered fundraising is like a circle with just that one person in it. That's just the donors. And there's not enough room in that circle for everybody else who powers the work. Because donors are not the only people who make the work possible. There's staff, there's volunteers, there's legislators, there's members, there's everybody, right? 
and community-centric fundraising that's just making that circle bigger, that we're just making it have enough room to hold more than just donors. So we're not taking donors out of it. We're not anti-donor. We're not ignoring them. We're just considering the needs and wants and desires of other groups along with donors. And the kind of nuance to that too is that I remind people that it doesn't mean that everything you do has to account for every single person ever. Because if something is for everyone, then it's effectively for no one. So it might be that this reception at the golf club that was just for donors is now going to hold more than just donors. And we're actually going to include our volunteers as well. So it doesn't mean you've got to invite every single person. It's just, you're going to account for more than just donors. And by adding in volunteers, you might say, actually, this golf club venue doesn't really make sense. Like it adds to the white supremacy of it all. So maybe we change the venue and like, that's how we get more into a community centered approach and sort of framework is to make that circle a little bigger and so big that it can hold all of us. I really appreciate that. I remember when we talked the first time you shared that visual with me and I was like, oh gosh, I think that is so helpful for people to understand because I think they think that they're swapping circles, right? That they're trying to like jump from one circle to another circle instead of making space inside the circle. And so I, I really appreciate that visual. I'm curious, how do you coach or talk to folks around mistakes or missteps or imperfection that they're going to experience as they start to walk into this work. And I'm thinking particularly about organizations who maybe have made statements about making an effort to change their practices in a number of different ways. And then I think that leads to a lot of fear that like, we're not always going to get this right. So how do you coach folks around that piece of it? Yeah, I remind people that it's inevitable. Like you're trying something new, you're doing things differently, there are going to be missteps. And so let's go ahead and take perfection off the table and just accept that it's part of going on this journey. There are going to be some stumbles and making a plan for yourself around what happens when I do stumble? Who do I go to? Who do I process with? Who are the stakeholders who need to be involved in the processing of that mistake? How do I care for myself? when I do that? How do I care for my team? I think being proactive about how you manage that misstep makes it so much easier when you get into the moment because that moment is already going to be so emotional. And so like, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Or that wasn't my intention. And now I made this person feel weird. Like, what do I do? If you go ahead and plan for, here's how I'm going to care for myself. Here's how I'm going to care for my team. I accepted from the beginning that something was going to happen and I'm now just living the thing that intellectually I understood was coming. It's an approach for preparing for that. I don't think that there's any way to fully prepare, but that is something you can do that when you get in the moment, you're like, okay, now I have some version of a path forward that's not just rooted in the emotion of the moment, but is reflective of my mindset when I wasn't you know, in this kind of fight or flight. I really appreciate that too. What do you say to the fundraiser who's like, okay, like I want to be adopting more community centric principles, but I'm inside an organization where the executive director or the chief development officer or the board is not there. What are the ways that these development folks can start to move in this direction without potentially the support of their organization? 
I think it starts with identifying the things that you can control. Like you can control your conversations with your donors. You can control the places where you meet them. Maybe instead of the restaurant in the Four Seasons, maybe we're going to meet at the BIPOC-owned coffee shop down the street or something like that. Maybe instead of just talking about our latest vacations, we're going to talk a little bit more about the area of interest within the organization, or we're going to talk more about current events, something that gets the donor closer to seeing themselves as part of the larger ecosystem and that they're not the only person kind of making this happen and they're not the only expert just because they have money. And I think there's just education we can do with our donors. Maybe it's having some sort of, not reception, but like a workshop that your donors are invited to that just digs into your issue area that says, here's the systemic failure that has led to the need that our organization is filling. Even that opens the door for these more difficult conversations with donors that are obviously challenging to have, but are super impactful and are the direction we need to be going in instead of having these conversations where it's the elephant in the room. Like, let's just get right to it. Let's recognize everybody's role in this and that everybody benefits from the work we're doing, not just the community served, but you as the donor also benefit. Yes, absolutely. And I love the way that you gave a lot of examples of ways to integrate that work into the work that I think people are not thinking about where you meet, like what you're talking about when you first sit down, how you're building that relationship. What are the principles and values on which you are building that relationship? I think there's so many decisions and maybe these feel like bigger ones too, but like you were saying, who gets invited to events? But I remember for an organization I worked for a long time ago, there was an event where the students were showcasing everything they had learned throughout the year at this big gala. And the parents of the students were not invited to that event. They had a different event for the parents, but that event, the parents were not invited to. And I think they had a lot of excuses as to why. There's so many moments like that and so many the way we've always done it that are small and big that play into this dynamic. And it's so much more. I think we are like hyper obsessing around like the words in our email marketing yes, <laughs> versus yes. like these things, <laughs> you know? Yes, 100%. Yeah. And I do this exercise in the Unpacking Donor-Centric Fundraising course that we take like a common scenario that's like, like you said, this event where the students are presenting their research. And the first question we ask ourselves is, who's left out of this? Who's not in the room? Parents being a huge part of that, right? And then the second question being, so what modifications can we make to accommodate more people to make that circle bigger? And maybe, you know, if it's a distraction for the parents, maybe a modification we make is a different venue where they can be a part of it, but not crammed in there, distracting their students, quote unquote. But thinking about who's left out of this and what are the shifts we can make to make room for those people. I think it's just a, a really great framework for reimagining these sorts of things, especially when we get stuck in the, well, this is how we've always done it. And the, well, it's working. Why would we make a change when it's serving our needs? Oh. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. God and like working, working, working. Is such, like, oh my God, working <laughs> is doing so much work these days. Like it is carrying people. Like okay, let's define working though. What was the definition of success? Because totally. when it was just increased profit, I'm sure it was working. But now that our definition of success is actually being inclusive and being equitable, then the things that we do in order for it to work are going to be different. Yes. And I mean, I even think it was hardly working, <laughs> even in the old definition, you yes. know, I mean, who was it I think, working for, yeah, yes. yeah. Who was it working for and how was it working and who was benefiting and what's the point? I mean, I think something I talk about a lot with fundraising is fundraising gets this rap as like the necessary evil or the means to an ends. And so like, we're doing the good work over here. And then fundraising is just what we have to do in order to be able to do the good work. And there's so many reasons why I think like, I talk about like fundraising is the work. And I, I want yes. fundraisers to understand that because I want them to realize that the movement of money towards these things is the work. And when it's done, rooted in the same principles that you're running your program in. And we can't just say, oh, we do all these things over here this way, but then we fundraise this way. And I think it leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance sort of in the identity of the fundraiser because they came to the organization because they're deeply rooted in the values of the work that the organization is doing, but then they're expected to fundraise in a way that actually is not living out those values. And so they're like, wait a second, like, is this worth it? Like I deal with this in my own business. Like there's a certain amount where I wake up every day and I'm like, I am participating in capitalism <laughs> and I am, you know, like I am the problem. Yes, and yes. right. So we all have those moments and it doesn't mean yeah. we are totally like excavated from the whole thing. But what I love about the way you talk about this is like, here's how we take steps forward towards aligning those pieces. Yes. And that the way that we fundraise has an impact and has meaning. It's not just going out and asking someone to give. There's so much more to it. And I think that's sort of a insidious part of donor-centered fundraising is the ways that it incentivizes fundraisers to put our values and our comfort aside and our boundaries I've told the story before of like my first donor visit ever. You know, I was like a mid twenties young woman. This was a maybe mid fifties man. And we were supposed to meet for coffee and the place where we were supposed to meet was closed. And he was like, Oh, I just live a couple of blocks away. I can just have you over for tea. And I was like, what do I do? <laughs> you know? Cause like I wasn't super comfortable with it, but I also didn't feel like I could say no, because how was I going to explain that to my boss? Like she wasn't going to be okay with that. And of course, nothing untoward happened. He had no ill intentions, but we are incentivized to do the things that make the donors happy, regardless of our own sense of happiness, comfort, and safety. Absolutely. I did a 
series on sexual harassment and fundraising and just all the layers of discomfort that we are expected to smile and nod and make nothing of. And yeah, and exactly like in that situation where luckily it was all well-intentioned. And when you said that, I was like, oh no. Yeah, right, (laughs) right. Yeah, there's something in the the pit of your stomach that's like, oh, yeah, totally. What are you supposed to do? What happens if I make this donor upset? What happens if he's like, I actually took that really personally that she said no. And maybe this isn't the place for me to give. Now I've got my livelihood at stake, right? All because I asserted my own boundaries. Yeah, it's a super real thing. I'm thinking about, I'm feeling like sensitive to the experience of fundraisers of color in particular, as we talk about even embracing community-centric principles when you don't have the support of leadership in the board, particularly if that leadership is white and you are a fundraiser of color. And we know from anecdotal testimonials, we know from data that fundraisers of color often need more meetings before they get a yes from a donor and that they are dealing with systematic racism in their roles. So I have found myself worried at times about how to best support them or protect them in environments where if they are the sole person embracing practices like this without the support of their border leadership, how to ensure that they don't get backlash or traumatize or experience additional racism because of that. And maybe I'm stepping out of bounds, even in my role of trying to be protective of them in that way. But I I just want to like name that like it feels very different to say to a white fundraiser, like, here's how you advocate for community-centric principles inside your organization. Here's how you incorporate it into your work, even without the leadership. And that is different, going to be a very different experience, likely, than encouraging a fundraiser of color. And so how do you think about that or navigate that or talk about that to folks? That's so valid. Because I think of even the way that I might present an idea as a Black woman, like my tone is going to be interrogated. Was I polite enough? Was I gracious enough? If this person feels like I'm implying something about them, now we've got a whole other issue where if I were a white woman saying the same thing, it would come across a little different or very different, I should say. I think that's a very real thing that BIPOC fundraisers have to deal with. And I would say like you get to make the call on how vocal you are about these issues as a BIPOC fundraiser, because you're just dealing with different circumstances. You've got more to lose. You can lose it a lot more quickly and easily than your white counterparts. So I would say if you're in that position where it's like my organization is just not going to be with it and I need this job, (laughs) you know, maybe it's deepening your own understanding of CCF. Maybe there's not that much that you can control that you can implement, but you can always study more, learn more, live into it more. It might just be that this is a, a solo journey for the time being until you're in an organization that gives you that support. But I would also take that as a data point, that if you're in an organization that's not willing to have those conversations um, or to create spaces that you're going to feel comfortable and confident in, then that might not be the place for you long term. 
So yeah, I would take all of that as a data point. And if it comes down to it, it just needs to be a U project, then it's just a U project. But BIPOC fundraisers definitely have to navigate CCF conversations about white supremacy, all of those things very differently than their white counterparts. Yeah. And my guess is that likely sometimes they're in situations where the organization verbally says that they are on board. But when it comes down to the metrics or evaluation or why haven't you closed that gift yet, all of those things are still totally rooted in white supremacy. And so the backlash is felt in that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, because we haven't embraced the part of combating white supremacy where it's not all about numbers and metrics. The way that job performance is evaluated is how much money you raise, how many gifts you close, how many visits you had, all of those things. We're not accounting for how did you deepen this donor's understanding of the work? How did you help them see themselves as part of this community and this ecosystem? Like That's not part of your performance review yet, I'll say. I hope that we'll get to a point where we can account for more than just the quantitative as we're measuring success. But until then, it's a super challenging place to be as a fundraiser. I appreciate that you give folks so many options of ways to embrace the work because I think what I'm watching, and I'm sure you're seeing it too, is this like very real sense of being trapped, right? Like I do need this job for the money. I cannot leave this job. And yet now all of a sudden I see all of these things that I didn't necessarily see before, but I feel trapped here and I don't feel like I have autonomy or voice or all these things. And so I so appreciate the way you give people so many different entry points. And it's not like, if you can't do this, then just like throw it all out, you know, or burn it all down. (laughs) Not that, not that, look, I'm all about like, you know, the revolutionary. And I think every movement needs that. But I think you and I are both seeing the very real daily experience of fundraisers. And I see what happens when they see messages like that, but then they really don't feel or don't have the choice to burn it all down. And then the position that that leaves them in to navigate. Yeah, I would rather you make adjustments and stay in it than say like, there's just no way forward and just abandon the whole thing. Dig through the mess and find the pieces of it that work for you and your circumstances and where you are and know that you can grow into the rest of it. I tell clients all the time, like we do not have to go zero to a (laughs) hundred, like zero to 25 is still progress. We're still moving forward and we can work towards that zero to 100, but just stay in it and stay moving. It's the most important thing. I love that. In executive coaching, there's this concept of one degree shifts that like, if you make a one degree shift every day, every week, ultimately your entire orientation changes. And so I think especially when we are, have been raised in white supremacy culture, we, again, that's that binary black and white, right, wrong. And so it can be hard to accept and embrace imperfect adjustments like that. So I just, I love your voice in this conversation. Can we pivot and talk about something really specific? Of course. Yeah. I want to talk about gratitude because I feel like this is a place where I've seen maybe the most clickbaity language around like thanking donors is white supremacy and like some very strong language around it. And I think 
when you get into some of the actual conversation around it, it becomes a lot more nuanced. But I have worried at times that people see headlines like that, and like, they're not going to thank their donors at all. And then we just know that that's going to have an impact. And I believe, and maybe you're going to challenge me here to think differently about this, which I totally welcome. But I do believe there are ways of showing gratitude that are not about saviorism or heroism or centering the donor even, but just appreciating that they have joined this movement, this work, that they're part of this community and for making that choice. And then we can talk about sort of the urgency piece as well, which is sort of like a separate thing around the like thank donors in 48 hour piece, but just in terms of expressing gratitude or feedback to donors Where do you sit with that? How do you encourage folks to do that or to not do that in ways that feel the most community centric? Well, I'm I'm with you. I do think we should thank donors. I think the community centered part comes in with not putting an arbitrary timeline on it. That's like, well, if I can't thank them in the next 48 hours, then what's the point? I think we can take that off the table. But I think about it, too, in terms of in our personal relationships, like if my friend does something kind for me or helps me out in some way, I don't send them an acknowledgement letter. (laughs) You know, I might send them a little thank you note. It might be a thank you text. It might be some sort of like written expression of gratitude. But it might also be that I, in turn, do something kind for them. It might be an act of service of some kind. And I think that's where we get into the making the circle bigger and expanding the way that we think about gratitude, that it might not be written down at all. It might be in our actions. And this came up for me when I was writing that piece on white supremacy and donor-centered fundraising and looking up the fact that expressions of gratitude can vary from culture to culture and that different cultures have different traditions of how they express that. And a lot of the time it is through actions. So I think that's a super intriguing way to think about our work is what if gratitude and stewardship was less worship of the written word and more like lived actions more showing up for people and knowing your donor well enough to know the ways that they feel that reception of gratitude, the ways that resonate with them the most. Totally. So the behavioral side I have, and I'm challenging it, and Michelle has been really opening my eyes to the urgency piece around the thank yous, because I was rooted in the like behavioral science, which is the, the chemicals that get released in our brain when we make a gift our serotonin, which doesn't cement memory, but dopamine cements memory. So if we can convert closely to a serotonin experience, a dopamine experience, which can be a warm thank you call, that actually more personal connection, then we actually will help the donors remember because so many donors don't remember who they gave to, when they gave, how much they gave, right? And so I had always come at it from that perspective. And I totally see how that now is rooted in this like urgency of white supremacy principles. And I love what you said about different cultures like to be thanked differently and feeling gratitude and feeling appreciated feels different to everyone and can look a number of different ways. And so there's something I don't have fully formed, but I'm trying to think about in terms of like 
the acknowledgement piece around like, we see you, like, thank you for joining our community. That's not some just like stock receipt, right? But just like thanking you, like we see you and we appreciate you being a part of this. And here are some things we think you'd enjoy watching that have happened over the last month, something like that. And then as you're building more of those personal individual relationships, I think the piece that you're talking about is so important. I agree with the written word piece. And, you know, I wonder, it's so hard. Like, you're right. Like with my friends, I'm not keeping track of like who did what for who, when, and (laughs) right. It's like, this is a real relationship, but it's like, we also want the person to have that relationship with the organization and not necessarily just the fundraiser, because then when the fundraiser leaves, their relationship leaves. And so that always feels like a complicated piece around like, how we really truly and authentically build relationships and connect while ensuring that, and maybe that goes back to what you were saying before around like, how do we start conversations? What are we talking about at the beginning? Where are we going when we meet? Like maybe that's how we really root our relationship in the principles of the organization to ensure that that person is building a relationship both with us, but also the cause. But that always feels like around the tracking piece. And I was never very good at tracking all the touch points because I would send little random notes or I'd drive past a donor's house and I'd leave something on their porch. And I did all a lot of my development work in a small community. And so it was like, and I was not tracking all this stuff, but I know that that then had an impact later on when other people wanted to have a sense for like how close we are to certain donors and things like that. So it does feel like there's this like balance there. Yeah, totally agree. I can definitely see the challenge in that and wanting to be very present and in relationship with your donor, but also not to the point where the relationship is entirely with you and not the organization as a whole. And now I'm just like thinking out loud, but I wonder if there's a way to incorporate other people on staff or maybe not even just staff, but involve them in that cultivation and gratitude piece. Maybe the thank you phone call comes from another person, like from your comms team, (laughs) you know, maybe it comes from one of your program participants. Maybe the handwritten thank you note isn't just signed solely by you, but signed by everyone who's in the office that day. I wonder if there are ways to be the leader of the effort and the initiative and making sure that it gets done, but doing it in a way that represents the larger scope of the work beyond just you. But again, thinking out loud. (laughs) I love that though. I think that absolutely, like that ensures that like not all the touch points are coming through your relationship, but that you can continue to maintain and nurture your relationship, but that you're consistently reminding that donor that their involvement is about something so much bigger. And here's the whole ecosystem around what we're doing together. So I so appreciate that. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I could talk to you forever. Same. Would you Mallory's link up? I know. I know. We're We're unstoppable. I will make sure that all of your links and everything are below for folks to find out about your different workshops and working with you. Is there anything in particular you wanted to direct folks to who listened to this interview? 
I would just say my weekly newsletter. I put out a newsletter every Friday. It's free. You just sign up at my website. It's MalloryMMitchell.com slash newsletter. Don't forget the M in the middle. That messes up a lot of people. But yeah, it's a short read. It's just some musings, some things that are on my radar that I'm thinking about and links to different resources and stuff. And it's really fun for me to put out. And I think it really resonates with people as just, you know, another fundraiser trying to figure it all out. I love it. I've loved all the content that you put out. So definitely everyone go sign up for the newsletter. Thank you so much, Mallory. Um, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you, Mallory. This was awesome. Okay, there is so much wisdom inside this episode that went beyond even the donor engagement conversation. But here are some of the top things that I'm thinking about and processing right now. Number one, the paradigm of fundraising has witnessed a significant change over the last few years with community-centric fundraising emerging as a newer mindset that respects the values of the entire community. While the approach might not be new, the attention that community-centric fundraising has gathered and the momentum that it's building is really shifting more organizations than ever before. This approach emphasizes the importance of accommodating the needs and desires of all stakeholders, not just donors, who contribute to the success of a nonprofit organization. Number two, effective fundraising requires striking a balance between honoring organizational values and meeting monetary goals. It can be challenging for fundraisers to align their work with the principles they hold dear, especially if there is a disconnect between those values and the fundraising approach that has historically been used by their organization. This might take time and iterations to correct, but we can take one step forward at a time. Number three, by creating a culture of inclusivity and understanding, community-centric fundraising inspires everyone involved to work collaboratively towards a common goal, bolstering collective impact and fostering sustained growth for the organization. Number four, keep in mind that community-centric fundraising is about expanding the circle to include more than just donors. So consider ways to involve volunteers, staff, legislators, members of your fundraising events and initiatives and communities, I think this is really important because this isn't about excluding donors. And sometimes I hear people go to the extreme with this and they fear making donors feel good in any way, but it's not about that. It's about who we are including in the circle as well and who we are centering in the conversation and in the work of the organization itself. And then lastly, as you navigate this space, embrace imperfection and accept that missteps are inevitable when trying something new. Focus on making progress towards more equitable and just approach in your fundraising efforts. And like our other conversation with Michelle, make sure that you are addressing the white supremacy cultural elements like perfectionism that might come up when you venture into this new territory. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Mallory and our amazing sponsors, Neon One, and their incredible 2023 email report. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.